Welcome to the third season of The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbinder, and together with my co-producer, Angela Washington, we bring you really amazing stories of amazing people. I'm so lucky that I get to have these conversations and to share them with you. These are conversations with people who have overcome, people who have endured, people who have gone on when others might not have. They've overcome losses or tragedies, disappointments and heartbreaks, or they've seen a goal and pursued it to its end. And what I'm really fascinated by is they don't just share that they had these stories or that they lived them, but how, what were their inspirations? What were the resources they used? What ideas kept them going? How did they dig deep and find what they needed to find to go on? Because it's my belief that when we learn how someone else got through hard times or found their goals, that we learn how we might be able to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And if you like what you hear, give us a like or a share on your social media site or golly, use the good old-fashioned word of mouth and tell a friend about us. We love sharing these stories with other people. Thanks for listening. I want to welcome to the Morning Glory Project today, Jari Bolander. He is an engineer by training and an entrepreneur by nature, with over 25 years bringing innovative solutions to markets. And as a partner in JSY PR and Marketing, he uses his passion for helping visionary companies find success. His most recent book is The Entrepreneur's Ethos, How to Build a More Ethical, Inclusive, and Resilient World. Clearly, Jari brings his values to his work. He's also dedicated himself to inspiring and educating the next generation of entrepreneurs on his podcast, The Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. Alongside his business and entrepreneurial success, Jari suffered one of the worst kinds of setback in his personal life when his young wife was taken by leukemia. Rather than put grief aside, he decided to take it on and write on it, write about it, completing a memoir on its way toward publication. Though he'd written books in the business world, this kind of writing was new. Today, Jari works at balancing loss, new love, and business while also serving his community and his values. Jari Bolander, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Well, thank you so much for having me. Wow, I didn't know I did all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny when I, that happens so often when I read people's bios, they go, oh gosh, that sounds like an impressive person. <laughs> I really want to get to know them. Yeah, yeah. For sure. yeah. Well, now you and I encountered each other in an unusual way. I attended a seminar that was hosted by my publisher about marketing and you were talking about marketing and you're not a book marketing folks. So all of my author friends, this is, this is not a publicist for that purpose, but you chose to share a personal story at the beginning of your talk. And I sort of felt like it was that moment, you know, how, when molecules lock together, cause they're the, they're the right shape. You and I have our opposite sides of a similar story in that you lost your young wife to leukemia and I married a, a widower who had lost his wife to leukemia. And it just seemed like there was this click that I went, oh my gosh, this is the other half of my story mm. in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about Jane? Yeah. So uh, Jane uh, was someone who I actually met after I got divorced uh, from my first wife. Uh, that first relationship lasted 
almost 18 years or a little over 18 years. So, you know, it was pretty, let's just say I wasn't ready <laughs> to go uh, off into the dating pool, which seems like a cesspool at times. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just crazy. You know, just to put that in perspective, I've never done any online dating. I've never had an online dating platform or profile just because I'm that old and that just doesn't never had to do that. But I, uh, I actually went to uh, Alice B. Tolkis LGBT Pride Breakfast, <laughs> funnily enough, and uh, was there with, um, with London Breed at the time, who was a supervisor candidate. Now she's mayor of San Francisco. And I was at her table, and Jane happened to be at her table as well. And so uh, we sort of hit it off, I guess. Well, that's one of those things I always tell people, young people, as well as mature people who are trying to find love in their life. I always say, go do things that you believe in. And yeah. then you meet other people that are doing things that they believe in and they happen to be some of the same thing. So it's, yeah. this is, I know that doesn't sound very modern when it comes to the match.com world, but, but that sounds like what happened to you. So you, you met Jane supporting something you believed in. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting because, um, you know, at the time I was at a company and, you know, I was really not in a good shape. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call me, uh, someone at that point that was, uh, good relationship material, so to speak. <laughs> um, you're a little I've, wounded, a little wounded. Yeah. I would say a lot wounded. actually, um, it was pretty tough on me and I did all the things that you're not supposed to do. You know, I drank too much and, just was generally had a poor attitude about life. And, uh, I, you know, then I meet Jane who was just this vibrant, you know, woman on a mission, I like to say. And, you know, it sort of saved me in one sense, but then also opened my eyes to, to how, wow, you know, like every day I should be trying to like live a better day. You know, like there was one of those things where I was always looking for the future and really pretty wound up in, career and, you know, all the trappings of being an entrepreneur, which is, you know, the fame, fortune, and prestige, ch chasing the exit, chasing the unicorn, so to speak. Mm. And it was just making me miserable. And, and even though Jane was an entrepreneur as well, she owned a company called JSY PR and marketing, which I actually still run funnily enough. Um, it, it sort of opened my eyes to, to, to like, Oh, there's a life I could, after this pretty major catastrophe at the time was the most major catastrophe I'd had in my life. Was the ending of your first marriage. And, you know, the first marriage. And then um, to see that there's a, there's, there's hope and there's a life after that was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So, mm. you know, we quickly fell in love and got married and wanted to have some kids. And uh, like a lot of couples, um, you know, had to deal with, several miscarriages, which, um, anyone that's ever had to gone through that is it's just a horrible experience and not a lot of support, quote unquote, I guess would be the word I'd look well, for. I, have, I, I call it the invisible sorority. Yeah. It's a club that lots of women, myself included, are uh, members of, but we don't necessarily know who the other members are until after we join. Yeah. And then, and you know, the statistics, like 50% of all pregnancies end in some sort of miscarriage. You just, sometimes you don't know, sometimes you do. Um, and so, you know, we're going through that process and 
you know, they're like, well, we don't really know what's going on. So we did all these tests and we did the, you know, IVF, we're going to be on the IVF train, so to speak. And one day it was the day after Christmas in 2015. Uh, we, we went to go get her a blood test. We, we were routinely getting blood tests back then sort of figure out what may, what may be wrong. And, um, we got a phone call and it was from Kaiser. Kaiser was our, our doctor, our primary, you know, we had Kaiser insurance and they said, uh, yeah, we need you to come into the ER. Uh, we saw your blood tests and we just wanted to run some more tests. And Jane's like, ah, do we really have to go in? <laughs> and, you know, like, I'm so sick of this, right? Who isn't sick of it, right? Um, but they're like, yeah, no, we need you to come in. So how fast can you get here? And uh, at the time we lived about, I don't know, five minutes by car, mm-hmm. got there. They were waiting for us. And they, uh, put her in a little room with the little curtains, you know, <laughs> not very private, but, uh, it was around. So it's December. So there's a lot of people that are sick with the flu. I mean, it looked like this mash hospital triage. Just what you want to be hanging out. And in- yeah, it's not, this is not a fun, fun place to be anyway. I mean, generally, but there was just a lot of sick people. And, uh, these, um, this one young doctor and this one older doctor came in and, said, well, uh, we think you may have leukemia. And uh, uh, the literal wind <laughs> got knocked out of me and, and, and Jane as well. Because we, we were not the kind of people that would just settle on, oh, someone tells us that something's going on. Like, no, let's go through the process of figuring out like WTF, right? Like right. this was a crazy thing, right? And we ended up having to spend, or she ended up having to spend three or four days because the 26th, I think was a Friday and we ended up spending the weekend there at the hospital. Uh, And then they confirmed it on that Monday through a bone marrow biopsy that she indeed had uh, acute myeloid leukemia, which pretty, pretty aggressive um, and had to do chemo right away. But if most people may or may not know that if you do do chemo, uh, you become uh, infertile. So on top of all this, we had to go do IVF and harvest eggs and all that sort of stuff. And uh, <sighs> Still hoping for a future down the road. Yeah, still hoping for a future down the road. So, yeah, we did that and... You know, that, that's what the memoir that you mentioned is about, um, trying to, uh, you know, give that experience some air. Um, you know, she died four and a half years ago, so. Well, first of all, I'm so very sorry for that loss. Oh, thank you. Um, and it seems that our story has another layer of connection because my husband's first wife, uh, whose name is Janet, to your Jane, um, <laughs> also had a miscarriage. And then just didn't, just kept feeling rotten and couldn't get better. And then they thought she kind of had the flu. She just kept feeling rotten, kept feeling rotten. And that's and then they tested and found leukemia. So it was probably her body rejecting pregnancy because it wasn't well enough to keep it. Or so we've we've always thought. I don't know that I don't know the science behind that because I know sick people can get pregnant. But I've often thought that perhaps. It was the body saying, uh, no, we're fighting other wars here. We don't have time to nurture a baby. <laughs> um, and 
perhaps as tragic as it is, it also might have some mercy to it as well. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. So you lost her, and here was the person. You had been married for some time before, but here you'd found what it sounds like to me. These may not be your words, Jari, but it sounds like to me you'd found someone you thought to be your soulmate, somebody who really inspired you to be a better person, kind of shot life back into you after a time when perhaps you didn't think that that was going to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's so interesting, this whole soulmate kind of construct, because that, that's what Jane would say. She, she actually would get mad at me. She get, would routinely get mad at me for being married before. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> hey, I can't do anything about this. Like that ship has sailed, right? Um, but we, yeah, we talk a lot about that. I mean, we had, you know, similar interests and we had a lot of similar um, kind of ethos, so to speak. Um, and I'm, I'm firmly believe that there are like multiple soulmates for mm-hmm. you in the world. There's so many people in the world that you're bound to run into a, a couple of few <laughs> that are yeah. uh, one that, that align well to you. Well, and, I, uh, I think it's a spelling issue because, <laughs> because I don't think it's, exactly. it's, it's a soulmate like S-O-L-E. It's S-O-U-L. Mm. And so it doesn't have to be only one. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I think soulmates can be friendships too sometimes, that, you know, that are not romantic partnerships. I I have a number of beautiful soulmates in my life. So I don't mean it in the kind of a rom-com movie kind of way, but in a, in a deep, it was a deep connection and and somebody that you were, like I said, were both inspired by and inspired to be a better person because of. Indeed. So how long from diagnosis to until she passed? Uh, 15 months. Oh, such a short time. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it's so interesting that, um, well, it, it's funny because, you know, that's what the memoir is about. And, you know, we met through your publisher and Brooke, who's actually my uh, coach, my memoir coach, right. because, uh, it's always good to find someone that knows a lot more than you do about stuff. And well, that's good advice for all entrepreneurs of all kinds and, and what we call authorpreneurs too, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, Jari, what I want to ask you, this will be the hardest question I ask. After losing Jane or during losing Jane, what was the darkest moment for you? And before that gets too scary to answer, what were the th- how did you get through? What what were the either strategies or inspirations or resources you found to help you get through to the other side? Yeah, that's a very astute question. Um, because as a man or someone who identifies as a man, I'm a cis white male, tall white guy with a beard, as I like to say, <laughs> not many resources for us to cope with these tragedies in our lives. And I mean, this is a, you know, the common stereotype that men suck it up and walk it off and get angry at things. So I got angry. Um, I also was an endurance athlete and I still am a extreme endurance athlete to a certain degree, not so much anymore. Uh, but I used to do these multi-day endurance events that would test both your mental and physical kind of prowess. And 
anyone that's ever done like an Ironman or a multi-day endurance event knows that it's really the mental game that gets you through it and really not the physical game. I mean, you, you physically are capable of 10 to 20x more than you really think. It's your mind that limits you to protect you in one sense, but also, you know, you don't have like kind of a, a, a sense of how much you can push. And so during, during that time, I, you know, I'm an engineer, as you mentioned in the intro, I sort of had it as this is a project and a puzzle. How, how do we save Jane? And I was also her full-time caregiver. So one of the reasons that I run JSY PR and marketing right now is because back then I was at a startup and we sat down one day and she's just like, well, look, you know, your startup's not paying you. We need to make money. So you're going to need to take over JSY because I can't do it. I mean, when you have leukemia and your immune system's suppressed, you can't be around people. Like, And this is pre-COVID when we didn't know how to work without being around people. <laughs> exactly. So this is pre-COVID. So, you know, I had to be the face. I had to go to all the meetings. I had to do a lot of the work, especially as she got treatment. So I really thought of this as a, as a project, as a puzzle, you know, my endurance athletic training kicked in, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Navy SEALs and I have a bunch of buddies that are Navy SEALs. And at the time, you know, there were some of them that were going through all this stuff, like their training and stuff. And I would just ask them, well, Hey, how do you, how do you get your mind right? What's the, what's the way to deal with this stuff that's just crushing? Cause it's, if you've never dealt with it before, it's just so much stuff goes on. And, you know, every day is just like, gosh, is there one more thing I need to do? And, you know, I was also, since I was her caregiver, I was um, having to communicate with everyone about what was going on. And one of the tactics we used, which a friend of mine, Troy, told me about, was we created this thing called a care circle. And this was probably one of the best things we ever did because I could, it's like a Google group. Everyone signed up for it and I would just send emails out. Hey, this is what's going on. This is what we need help with. Because a lot of times, you know, people say, well, I'm here to help. What can I do for you? And that's like the absolute wrong answer or wrong question to ask. Exactly. Because I have no idea what you can do for me. I would just want my I want Jane to not have leukemia. I have, I'm, I'm swimming in this sea. I'm, I'm way out past the breakers. I'm drowning. I have no idea what I need other than food and rest. And at the time, as she was, you know, when she would get sick, I'd vape a lot of uh, CBD to just to sleep. I couldn't sleep a lot. So the care circle, which was one really good coping mechanism and also communications mechanism because I didn't have to repeat myself a thousand times, right? To everyone. Cause it's really draining to have to update everyone constantly. So we did this care circle and a lot of actually some of the care circle emails, the actual emails, both Jane and I sent are, are actually in the memoir. Um, Cause I wanted to get a sense of when people read it, they're not just reading it, you know, it's from my voice, but also from, this is who Jane was, right? So you actually can read what she wrote. In fact, also get to see some of the text messages. She was a big into text messaging between us <laughs> during some of the challenging times. But I think it was the care circle organizing around this is a this is our mission. 
you know, we had little mission code names and stuff to just keep it kind of focused. And then, um, you know, in terms of personal coping, I did a really horrible job at it. I, I'm one, I'm a person that just likes to fix things, you know, classical engineer. Well, I was just, I was just going to say that, that look, cancer and, and, or chronic illness or terminal illness is traumatic and horrible for anybody involved, of course, in lots of ways. But I would think that being, you know, such a problem solver kind of a person, you know, you're an engineer, it's a puzzle. I just need to fit the pieces together. Okay. That piece doesn't fit. Let's try another, you know, that there's, there's a, the reality was that it was a puzzle that wasn't going to fit together. Jane wasn't, didn't get better. Right. It could have been in under different circumstances. And there are lots of people who are cancer survivors, but not all. Yeah. It doesn't sound like that was in the cards for, for you guys. Yeah. That had to be extra frustrating for somebody who is used to doing things and having the result be things get fixed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, I didn't think that way. You know, it was just, okay, what do we got to do next to get this done? Like, okay, you're going to survive. This is not going to be an issue where we're going to sort through it. I mean, she had the same attitude as well. I mean, she just, there was nothing that she couldn't do in her mind. I think, you know, as time wore on and it started to become a little clearer that uh, this may not end well. And I think it was around the time the bone marrow transplant kind of didn't a hundred percent take or kind of took a turn for the worst. That's when I really started to um, have a little bit of doubt Um, and coping with that was really hard. I mean, I did all the things you're not supposed to do, (laughs) right? You know, um, what did you do that you weren't supposed to do? Oh, you know, I drank too much, smoked too much pot, you know, ate, ate too many donuts. I mean, What's interesting when you're in this situation, your body is just so like electric alive. You you got all these cortisol dumps. You can't sleep very well. You're always tired. And literally you don't feel any joy. You're kind of numb. And the only thing I wanted to feel was some sort of dopamine hit that was going to make me feel like normal, right? I would, I would do this uh, thing where we, I would spend the night in the hospital with Jane it, one, it made her feel better. And two, I needed to help her. Like there were times where, okay, we have to dress you. We have to, you know, make sure everything's okay. And, you know, kind of be an advocate, which is a whole other crazy, just nutty thing. Navigating the medical world is a whole other nightmare. Um, but I would do this thing where, um, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I would go to work cause we had an office back then. And before I'd go to work though, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go get some coffee. And I would go up the street to this little, it was a Panera bakery and it's a, it's a chain. I don't think it's there anymore, but I would just sit down. I'd have my double espresso and my orange <laughs> cranberry scone or whatever. And for like five minutes, I just felt normal. Like I just could feel like, ah, oh, I felt, feel normal. And then that would pass. And then I'd be like, okay, like, how am I going to tackle the day? Because it could have been, I had to go to work or she's getting another infusion or she's sick or, and I just remember there would be that. And then as soon as I would get back, there's, you know, in a, in a hospital room, you know, you walk up to the, to the door and I literally would stare at this door and it was her, the door to her room. I'd stare at this door going, as soon as I walk past this threshold, 
my world has totally changed. And yeah, there were days where I just didn't want to be there. I mean, and, and she would tell me this all the time. I mean, she'd text me, it's like, well, it sound like you really want to be here. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> hard for me to say this, but it's getting, it's taken its toll on me. I mean, of course it was taking its toll on her. I mean, obviously she's, she was the one that was battling. Well, the, the disease wasn't only just hers. Um, and it, it's, it's comes wrapped with all kinds of guilt and obligation and fear and panic and all those things. You know, it's, it's, it's also strikes me as kind of a cruel irony, really, that when we're troubled or under duress, and stress and agony that that we do seem to crave the things that ultimately don't help us very much at all. You know, it's not like we crave broccoli and nutritious <laughs> foods, you know, it's, it's not like, it, it's just weird to me. It, it seems like some kind of, I mean, dare I say this, that perhaps there's a design flaw in our system that we crave the things that are actually going to do us harm as opposed to the things that would bring us the most help. So how did you, I mean, clearly Jane passed and that was hard. In addition to the, the care circle, what other things that weren't alcohol and pot and sugary food, what, what did help you get through and where are you now? Yeah. So, um, you know, after she died, that was about four and a half years ago. Um, pretty rapidly, actually, um, I met someone new. And who now happens to be my fiance, which was it's just so beautiful and really a testament to how life should be lived. And, you know, it's super interesting because Jane and I would talk about like, okay, if she doesn't make it, she wants me to be happy. She wants me to not feel sad. And she knew me pretty well. So she knew I was not going to take this well. Um, and so I met someone new. Her name's Minerva. And... I was still, it's just so fascinating because I, I still had the bad habits of coping and, and these habits are not like, I didn't just pick these habits up. This had been my coping mechanism my entire life. So it just got amplified, you know, it, it, you know, dial it up to 11, right. <laughs> on, on the, the craziness of it all. Right. Um, and what's interesting is that these kind of traumatic experiences, one, you, you feel it in your body. I mean, your whole body just sort of aches and you just feel numb. And it, it's imagine you're kind of getting hit by waves in the ocean. You just can't like get ahead of it. You're gasping for air and your body just, just at times just trembles. And every time I talk about it, I'd feel like, God, I feel so awful. Um, and it turns out that, you know, the alcohol and the, and the, the marijuana, they weren't helping the healing process of me actually down-regulating my body to help me get rid of this energy or, and, and not think about it. So what I, what I ended up doing about two or three weeks after Jane died is I started doing jujitsu. And the beautiful thing about that is my, one of my friends, uh, KO, she, she came with me and the thing that was great about it is no one knew who I was. I'm just some newbie that's trying to learn jujitsu at, you know, what, 46 or whatever. And the physicality of it and the soul focus of it 
the, you really can't think about much when someone's trying to choke you out. <laughs> so other than not getting choked out. No, it pretty much puts you right in the moment. It, right? You're 100% in the moment. And so I started doing that and that, that was like for a brief respite. Oh, okay. This is what it feels like to just be focused on one thing. And then I, I started to work out more because during the time when Jane was sick, I couldn't really work out the way I used to. And then I... Well, so that's a double thing. So you're doing the cruddy stuff that isn't helping your body and you're not doing the thing that your body is accustomed to doing that gives it its endorphins and Correct. its <laughs> other kinds of pleasure and pride. The definitely, yeah, the down regulation of all the anxiety and, you know, cortisol spikes and all that sort of stuff. And so I started, you know, really doing more of the jujitsu, trying to work out more. Um, but still I was having these massive mood swings, um, really like there were days where honestly, I just wanted to walk in front of a bus. I'm just like, this is just so bad. I don't know what the hell to do. And, and, and not that I would walk in front of a bus, but that's how I felt. I, you know, I was mildly depressed and trying to sort this out and, you know, alcohol wasn't helping this. So, you know, I had a couple of these breakdowns, like meltdown, like um, we're talking meltdown, not, not a little crying. Like <laughs> I was, I had, I, there's one point, I think I, I just had to call Minerva and I'm like, you need to come down to the office. I am just, I'm out of, I don't know what to do. I was so distraught and despondent. I want to pause for just a second, Jari, because what I'm, I'm sorry that you were experiencing such pain and heartbreak, but I also think that it's it's a good thing to note that finding Minerva and finding new love didn't auto automatically just fix everything. That the grief was present even when you had welcomed new love in your yeah. life. No, it's true. I mean, she's just a saint <laughs> dealing with all my chaos right at the time. And yeah, so that that's very very astute question as well. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in order to be, for me to kind of move through the grief and move through all the things that, that happened to me, I had to come to terms with my family of origin and how I coped with stress, strain, and just bad things. Right. And again, you know, the, the coping mechanism wasn't, you know, magically appeared when, you know, Jane got sick. This was something I did my whole life. And so it's really, you got to work on yourself. I mean, granted support of people that love you. And then of course, finding new love. And she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. That's very patient and kind and loving. And, you know, I'm lucky. I mean, honestly, like how often do you find someone, you know, that, that, that you get along with, let alone that kind of takes you for who you are, even when you, when you are not the best person you can be. And I just sort of realized that I had to do this, do some work on myself um, in order for me to show up in a new relationship, actually to show up in the world, to be honest, I had to kind of deal with some of the things that led me down the path to coping the way I coped. And about a little over a year after, after Jane died, I, I decided to just stop drinking alcohol. I, I'm like, this isn't helping. It's only making it worse. And I, I really, if I'm going to honor my commitment to Jane to be happy, you know, I, I need to 
get my act together. And I mean, during this whole time, I'd been going to therapy and trying to work through it all. And it just didn't seem like suppressing these emotions or the quick fix, you know, (laughs) the quick ready tab of booze to help you downregulate your emotion didn't seem like the way to go anymore. And so I quit cold turkey and that's been over three years, yeah, three and a half years. So it sounds like for you, there was the underlying who you were before Jane got sick and passed that was kind of not in the forefront, perhaps, it was, but it was kind of humming around in the background. <laughs> this guy that kind of seeks extreme uh, sensation in terms of the extreme athleticism and those kinds of things, that's who you were. You know, this is, this is the petri dish in which this experiment was conducted right the 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 who you were but it sounds like the solutions for you were multiple in terms of that they, they were mind body and soul they were social in terms of your care circle and other loved ones and friends and therapists they were there was activity with jujitsu and and changing the relationship with the body in terms of alcohol and chemicals and those things and also the heart of welcoming uh, new love and finding somebody that that could participate in that recovery process. So, Jari, I only have just another couple of moments left, but I do want to ask you about the writing of this story and what that's been like for you, if that's been part of your healing process as well. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, how I, I process the world through writing. My mind um, can sometimes be chaotic and in order to make sense of the world, I have to write it down and think about it. And I always think, you know, my, and this is just me, I don't know if other people think this, but I figured if you battle the dragon, you come back, you survive and you got some gold, you got to share the gold, right? Um, And that's what this memoir is about. It's one, it was incredibly healing to write the story of Jane and I and, you know, who she was so that you know, she'll never be forgotten. And then it was also very cathartic, um, very, very healing. And, you know, it was interesting because the, the lessons that you learn when you're in it, like you're in the, you're in the mix, you, you don't really think about, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just reflection is a very powerful thing. And once you're kind of gotten through some of the acute grief and trauma and you're sort of now processing so you can kind of get back on the horse or get back into life, reflecting back on what you went through and writing about it is a very powerful process. And it's, it's painful. I mean, there's times where, I mean, I would just sit there and rewrite and write or write a chapter or rewrite something. I just couldn't stop crying because I just remembered. It's like, oh man, I remember that. Well, which is why somebody might avoid it. But the irony is that sometimes the going through it is the way to get through it. <laughs> you know, the only way through it is through it. You can't go around it. Oh, yeah. The case. 100%. I mean, I, that's the thing I don't understand. I mean, th- this is part of the thing with being a man, right? So, you know, we as a, in society say, okay, man, you can get angry, but you can't show emotion. You can't cry, right? But if you're a woman, you can cry, show emotion, but you can't get angry. So there's this like conflict because we're we're humans we we're going to show sadness and anger at the same time and I, I i even though it was tough to do at times like honestly a good cry it sounds weird doesn't sound very manly but 
to release the tension. I mean, that's the reason why like working out and the jujitsu was really good because your body is just has all this pent up like grief, loss, just it's it, it, it's everywhere. And in fact, sometimes when you talk about it, you relive it, especially in the acute stages of grief, you actually relive the experience as you talk about it. So sometimes it's actually not good to talk about it. It's good to like physically get it out physically, like be, you know, more like try to downregulate your body so you can actually work through it. And I think that's a big challenge for a lot of men. Well, and the, the other challenge of course is sleep. Yes. That yes. that when sleep is disturbed or interrupted or denied, that everything gets really distorted. And you know, Jari, as we kind of come to a close here, the the thing that I learned in writing my own story, even though I was on the other side of it, I I married a man, a widower with a young son, and became a mom through the side door, as I say, the first time. And what I learned in the writing of that. I didn't even know the theme of my book until the book was nearly done. Mm. And the theme of my book was that love and loss are not opposites, but they're cohabitants that grief and gratitude needed to live side by side in our house. I could be so grateful for the new family that I had, but they were an inheritance that was only mine because of a tragedy they'd suffered. Yeah. And that I didn't have to feel guilty about feeling happy for having the new thing it didn't mean that I didn't love and wouldn't have wanted for my son and my husband to have had their first wife and mother. So it's learning that those things coexist and aren't contradictions, but roommates. (laughs) (laughs) I like the roommate analogy. Yeah. 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 Well, so I, I wish you every kind of happiness as your new joy and new marriage grow and grow. And that, even if um, if you have the presence of loss that will never completely leave, that you also let it live coinciding with your joy. Yeah. Well, that's what Jane would have wanted. Yeah. So. Well, I wish you every happiness. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Of course. Happy to do it. How my conversation with Jari Bolander came to be is part of what I want to share in Extra Blooms, and that is that he was giving a business talk. He was giving a talk about about PR, and he chose to share a part of his personal story, and that personal story connected to mine. And if you listened to this episode, he talked about when his wife had a miscarriage and how they found out so many more people had had that. You know, so much of our pain or loss or hardship or worry is something we try to hide. But when we share it, we can connect. We can have witnesses. We can have people that understand. We can make connections. We can inspire one another. And that's why I was inspired to bring Jari's story. His so perfectly fit with my own. My memoir is called Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And it's the other side of the story, like what Jari just told. I learned 
by writing and sharing that story, just how many people have been in situations not unlike my own, or even if their situation is different, their situation can be bridged to mine with empathy and mine to theirs with empathy in return. This storytelling stuff, people, I think it's my religion. (laughs) I think that telling stories, telling who we are, telling the truth, bearing our hearts to each other, not just the dark stories, but the joyful celebratory ones too. This is what connects us. This is what knits us together as human beings. And it so inspires me. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project and this little extra bloom I had to share. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're going through, that you're finding the ways to connect to others to support you, that you're finding those empathy bridges between your story and the stories of those around you, and that you are finding a way to bloom.